Hello everyone. Thanks for listening to Come Follow Me Insights with Taylor and Tyler presented by Scripture Central. We use a lot of visuals in our videos, so if you want to see the visuals, we invite you to find us on YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Scripture Central's Come Follow Me Insights today, 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13. Have you ever had the experience of looking around a ward or a stake or your family or a neighborhood or a work setting and wondering what your real place is in that setting or feeling like maybe you don't fit in or feeling inferior to everybody or perhaps even feeling superior to everybody or all kinds of of mixtures of emotions that come when we make comparisons with other people. This uh, set of scriptures that we're going to cover today, these chapters right here in the middle part of 1 Corinthians, are going to help us address this issue of finding our place within a group, within a whole or a collective, and how to actually benefit that group rather than be uh, intimidated by or any other negative aspect that comes when we start making comparisons. So this is a powerful lesson for helping us find our identity and to more fully love our neighbor as ourself. And earlier, as we were getting prepared, you had a verse you wanted to share that kind of exemplifies how Paul is trying to drive home this message of unity in a very diverse congregation or community. Yeah, and perhaps that verse would best be portrayed with a little diagram is you have this this individual in a crowd and verse 33 of chapter 10 says, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. It's a question of directionality for the arrows. Are the arrows for my life turned inward? Am I looking at the group to say, what can I get from them? How can they benefit me? How can I be better because of what they're going to do for me or say to me or prop me up? Or as Paul's putting it, he's trying to live his life with the arrows pointed outward. So he's saying, I want to live so that I can be a benefit to them. How can I help them? Now stop and think about what just happened with that little analogy and cast your mind back to the pre-mortal council in heaven where Lucifer comes forward with a suggestion to basically overthrow God's plan and present his own, which was a lie from the beginning, but you'll notice the direction of his arrows were all turned inward. He was looking at us with this perspective, what can I get from them and take from them for my benefit versus the Lord Jesus Christ or Jehovah in that case in the pre-mortal council looking out at us saying, how can I help them? Which now brings to mind that beautiful statement when Heavenly Father says, whom shall I send? Jehovah's answer was, Father, here am I, send me I will be thy son, and the glory be thine forever. And with that little statement, he's offering to be the Savior and Redeemer for all of us. 
Well did Elder Maxwell say, never has one offered to do so much for so many in so few words as the Savior did on that occasion. And I love here that Paul is trying to reflect that divine attribute. And so, of all the things we're going to take away from this lesson, we hope that it will invite and encourage and motivate each of us to strive also to become more like the Savior in all of our relationships, whether it be in a big group or a small group or even a marriage relationship. What can I do to bless and lift? Back to his words, that not seeking for mine own profit, but the profit of many, or in this case, the profit of others, that they may be saved. That scripture is a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Paul is striving to be like him, and I want to be like him as well. So, these chapters follow a similar theme that we see throughout 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing this letter to a group of saints who are dealing with disunity. Again, have you ever experienced disunity in your life in any way? It is a pretty common experience for fallen humans to find themselves in some moment of disunity, and it gives us an opportunity to practice to be more unified. And Paul uses a series of very interesting examples or case studies that help people think about how to be more unified. Now, some of us might read this and find ourselves a bit confused. Sometimes Paul uses rhetoric or logic or examples that don't make immediate sense. And we want to be clear that it's important as we read the scriptures, we look for gospel principles that apply to our lives, but also be careful to not take ancient context that may be not fully understood or different and force it into our own lives. We want to make sure gospel principles are applied, but not simply wholesale grab an ancient context that might be very different than what you're living and just try to make it work. That's a really good point, Taylor. There's a huge difference between principles that are true. Those would be truths that are true and applicable across time, space, and life situations. So, those are the principles, but then there are practices. There are a lot of things that were done anciently that we would never do today, and there are things we're doing today that they would have never done back then. So, that's that's an important distinction, the difference between these principles and the practices that you're going to find embedded with principles in our scripture page. Now that you've clarified the difference between principle and practice, I'm going to share some stories from when I was growing up. So, we had seven siblings in my family, and We had disunity at times, probably far more than my parents would like to count. For example, my my parents had purchased a set of colorful plastic cups, and for whatever reason, all of us siblings fought over the blue cup. Like, fights would break out at every meal about who got the blue cup. You imagine my parents who want a peaceful, unified family, they finally essentially passed a law and said, here's the practice. Nobody gets the blue cup. Now, I wonder, if my parents, if they're watching, am I now in trouble because I'm holding a blue cup? Now, what's the principle here that I'm talking about, or even the idea? When my parents said nobody's getting the blue cup, was that a law that is intended for all people at all times and all places? Are my parents hoping that for the rest of my life I never touch a blue cup? Or were they taking a very specific context and trying to address it and try to bring unity? 
Here's another example. Uh, my siblings and I would always fight about who got to sit in the front seat. Again, my parents in exasperation, like, we're just trying to drive to church. We don't need a fight breaking out about where people are sitting. So they essentially said, no one's sitting in the front seat. Now, let's think about this. If we made that as a law for all people at all times and all places, I don't know how I, as an adult, or anybody could ever drive a car from the back seat. How does this apply to what we're reading here? Sometimes when we read the scriptures, for example, even these instructions Paul is giving to a very specific group, we sometimes think, oh, well, if Paul said it, and that's the practice, we now have to apply that practice at all times to all people in all places. And I wonder if Paul was here today, would he say, yep, when I wrote this letter 2,000 years ago to the ward in Corinth to help them deal with their specific issues with disunity, I really expected everybody to apply every single practice for the rest of eternity that they saw in that situation. I wonder if he instead might say, the principle here is to be unified in the body of Christ. And however your group might be disunified, there might be different cases for how to deal with that. So as we read, let's be merciful to ourselves and to the ancient people that our circumstances might be different. The principle is the same. We can be unified, but the practices for how we get there might be different. And perhaps that might help us feel more love and engagement with the scriptures instead of a little bit overwhelmed that some of the practices may not fit our modern day cultural context. So today's lesson covers 1 Corinthians 8 through 13. We're gonna do things a little bit differently. We're gonna start in chapter 12 and 13 because there's some powerful, beautiful imagery about unity. And then we'll go back to the earlier chapters and talk about some of the context, the cultural context of how Paul was trying to deal with disunity among the Corinthian saints in their ward. So let's pick it up in, in chapter 12, verse one. This is this is a beautiful chapter, one of three in all of the scriptures, Doctrine and Covenants 46 and Moroni 10, and here in 1 Corinthians 12 where it goes into great detail about the gifts of the Spirit or the gifts of the Holy Ghost that are given to, to the children of God. And remember the context here is at any point any prophet could talk about the gifts of the Spirit. Paul is speaking specifically about the gifts to help the saints understand in Corinth each of you is going to have a various set of gifts. All of that is intended to benefit the whole. And sometimes we forget that, that the gifts of the Spirit, among many reasons we have them, one of them is to create unity in the diversity of the gifts. And back to the example at the beginning of turned outward, the gifts are given to me to bless you, not just to benefit the person who received the gift. They're, they're to help us become more like Christ, to turn outward. And he opens chapter 12 by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Ye know that ye were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. And the word dumb here means mute, like these things can't talk. They don't have any ability to express or be creative or in any way represent what God is like. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. You can't, you can't generate that testimony on your own, and you can't, with the Holy Ghost, say negative things 
against the Lord. This is a powerful example of unity, that of all the gifts, ultimately, they all come through Jesus, through the Holy Ghost, and all of it is to declare that Jesus is Lord. It's really quite subtly powerful. Verse 4 says, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. It's the same member of the Godhead who delivers these gifts, but there is a wide variety of those gifts. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. Have you ever had a change of a bishopric or a stake president or presidency or a couple of mission presidents or change in a Relief Society presidency and things shift? There's a difference of administration. Apparently, the Lord is okay with some some variation. He doesn't expect everybody to, to administer exactly the same because each person has a unique set of gifts, talents, and abilities and perspectives that they're going to bring into those callings or into that setting. And I love how we rely on heaven through the Savior's grace and the power of the Holy Ghost to activate this uh, ability for differences of administration. Verse 6, and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. Notice what percentage are supposed to profit. It's not individual, one here and one there. It's every man is going to profit with all. Uh, it says, for to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled over the difference between wisdom and knowledge, and I'm not sure I'm wise enough to completely know the difference between the two, why he would put them in two separate categories here at the beginning. Wisdom seems to be the ability to apply truth, apply principles wisely in various settings. Knowledge is the ability to just know a lot of things, a lot of facts, figures, dates, places, how the world works, how things work, how relationships work. So, what a beautiful thing if you can have people in your congregation who represent these two initial gifts. Then in verse 9 he says, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. That's interesting he's saying the same Spirit. Remember, the letter to 1 Corinthians, one of the major themes is unity. And look at all the different things he's talking about that ultimately are all unified in the Spirit of God. And then verse 10, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. So you're seeing this, this wide range of gifts all given by the same Spirit, which now launches him into this object lesson that is, quite frankly, one of the most powerful uh, organizational management or organizational behavior principles that I could think of, but I'm not an expert in that realm, but wow, this is beautiful. Uh, all these worketh that one and the same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also 
is Christ. Now, if you consider this, and, and there's no extra charge here for the exceptional artwork that we provide here, of course. It's um, a gingerbread man. It's, it's terrible, but it's... Are you it's saying your gift is not art? Going to be sufficient. Uh, no, I, I was not blessed as, as an artist. I'm going to try to stick to my day job. Um, I, it's pretty sketchy. What I like about this, Tyler, this is a pretty good de depiction of who I am. Clearly, it's me because I like to be a happy person, and the guy has no hair. Okay, we're going to fix that. I'll just <laughs> add some hair. Okay, here's the point. You have one body, and Paul's describing many members to that body. And now this brings him into this portion of his teaching where he says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. And then he says, For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am, the, I am not the hand, I am not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? And then he does the same comparison with the ear and the eye. And he says, if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? You know, this reminds me of an incredible talk that was given by Elder Joseph B. Worthland back in April of 2008 called Concern for the One. And in this, he talks about unity from our perspective today, a little differently than, than maybe Paul did 2,000 years ago. This is powerful. He says, we have an erroneous belief that all members of the church should look, talk, and be alike. The Lord did not people the earth with a vibrant orchestra of personalities only to value the piccolos of the world. Every instrument is precious and adds to the complex beauty of the symphony. All of Heavenly Father's children are different in some degree, yet each has his own beautiful sound that adds depth and richness to the whole, which to me ties in in a lot of ways to everything we're talking about in these particular chapters, this idea of if you have the conductor, he's going to give certain instructions to the strings, and he's going to give even more specific instructions to the violins that are going to be very different than the instructions he gives to the timpani and the percussion and the woodwinds and the brass section. And sometimes you can have people in one section feeling like they're not as valued or as good as the people in the other section, or worse yet, trying to apply the principles that were given to one section that may not apply at all. So you can see with, with all of these analogies and all these principles swirling around, what a loss it would be if the foot, in doing a comparison with the rest of the body, feels less than or lower down than everything else. And so it starts to try to act like an eye or an ear or a nose, or the mind. The body is benef benefited if the foot magnifies its unique capacities and gifts and place in the body, rather than struggling with comparison, caustic comparison, 
that leads to the body not functioning the way it should. You, you've all heard the famous phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. What an amazing thing it is when all of the members of a congregation or members of a body in Christ feel comfortable in their own skin and feel confident in the gifts that God has given them uniquely to benefit the whole body with, and they lift where they stand, to use President Uchtdorf's analogy. It's powerful, this idea of be the very best that I can be in the orchestra of the Lord or the body of Christ or whatever other analogy you want, and it will create that beautiful harmony in the symphony and that beautiful working of the body rather than constantly comparing, contrasting, fighting, bickering, and warring against other members of the same body. Now, we've talked about comparisons that, that lead to somewhat of an inferiority complex, where, where you feel less than or unworthy of or like you don't fit in. There's the other comparison of pride looking downward rather than pride looking upward, where you make those comparisons and you might feel superior to others. I love this next part. He says, verse 21, the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow, bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Stop and think about this for a minute. You're doing some activity. I, I don't, whatever you enjoy doing, water skiing, snow skiing, rock climbing, hiking, whatever. And let's assume that you have an accident. You somehow fall and you break an arm. Does the rest of your body now gang up on that broken arm and say, you dumb arm? What were you thinking? How could you slow us down? Why would you possibly be so weak and get broken? Now we, you're making it so we can't enjoy the rest of this activity. I can't believe you would do that. Is that what happens? Or does the body, the other members of a body, instinctively, without even thinking about it, if something gets broken, what does the rest of your body automatically do? You pull that broken or that injured part of your body in and, and you curl around it. You, you try to protect it. And nurture it. And nurture it. You, all of the other parts of your body are now focused on that part of your body that's injured, that's hurt. It needs your help. It needs your love and attention and care. Not discipline at that point. It knows that it got broken. It knows that it needs healing and help. We can see it with a physical body, but can we see it in the body of Christ, in our congregations, in your Relief Society, in your elders' quorum? Do you look at all of the healthy, quote-unquote, not broken members of your quorum and think, well, those are the good ones, and these are the ones we could do without? Or if you're feeling strong and healthy, Paul's invitation would be, to find those who might be the more feeble members of that body and give more abundant honor to them, 
to not think less honorably of them, but to give more attention to them, knowing that with proper care and attention, what happens to those weak or feeble members of the body? And it doesn't even need to be a broken arm or a broken leg. It could be a lack of muscle structure. What do you do? You focus on it and you build up the strength in that part of your body and it becomes stronger and stronger over time. So notice how he sums this up in verse 24. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. It's like this invitation to show God's love and mercy. And he, go, he continues in verse 25 and says that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. So life is full of brokenness. It's not because God creates brokenness. He allows it so we can feel the power of healing that comes through his love through us to others. And I think in my own life, uh, just this morning, I wrote a thank you note to an aunt and uncle who probably don't know, John and Carol Halverson, I had a moment of brokenness in my life and their powerful example of love and kindness, which they had not even specifically shown to me at the time of my hurting, reminded me in a moment of darkness that there is hope and it helped to bring healing. And so again, what Paul is trying to say, and sometimes his logic can sound a little confusing, is when there is a lack, when there's a challenge, when there's brokenness, that is an invitation for the whole to bring more wholeness, to bring healing. And that all is to represent that in the kingdom of God, God himself is whole, his kingdom is a place of wholeness. To, to add some more breadth and perhaps even depth to this concept, it's a, it's a beautiful thing when you can read the scriptures as a whole themselves, to not put, so we've been talking about people, but the same principle applies to scripture or to teachings of prophets. When you don't isolate, for instance, 1 Corinthians from the rest of the body of scripture and say, okay, this one's more important than the others, but you bring them all together and you read them as one. Let me give you just a little teeny example of that. If next to verse uh, 24, 25, you could write a, a beautiful cross-reference, and there are many. This is just one example to, to teach this principle. The cross-reference would be Doctrine and Covenants section 82, verse 18 and 19. And now what you get is a triangulation of this concept, but in this case, from the words of Jesus Christ given to Joseph Smith. So to lead into verse 18, let's just read the very first part of Doctrine and Covenants 82, 17. He says, you are to be equal, or in other words, you are to have equal claims on the properties. So it's this equality of the body, even though they're very different callings and different gifts and abilities. Why? Verse 18, all this for the benefit of the church of the living God, that every man may improve upon his talent, that every man may gain other talents, yea, even an hundredfold to be cast where? Not into my own bank account, but into the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church. Every man seeking the interest of his neighbor and doing all things with an eye 
single to the glory of God. So, back to Taylor's analogy at the beginning, difference between principles and practices. Here we're talking about united order in early church history. With Paul, we're talking about issues facing Corinthian saints 2,000 years ago, but the principle's the same. The principle hasn't changed, and you may not be living in the section 82 or the Corinthian environment and setting, but the principle hasn't changed. So now, with the help of the Holy Ghost, we can figure out how to apply those principles into practices that make sense today um, in, in our world and in our life. And to make this more explicit, each one of us, as we're reading these scriptures, should be asking, where have I been disunified? Where have I been self-focused? What could I be doing in my family or community or any other space where you're interacting with others to be more unified? Is there something I'm doing that's creating problems in a relationship or in a society or a community? And the likelihood is all of us can find a way to be just a bit better, a little bit better every day in bringing unity and thus expressing the wholeness of God's kingdom. Love it. And he finishes this, this whole concept in verse 26 and 27. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. It's that concept of the, the core of relief society and what ministering in both the elders and the quorum and the relief society are, is supposed to do. It's to try to lift and build and relieve that suffering because the entire body is benefited from those efforts. And then he shifts here in verse 28 to say, And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets. Remember, some might be confused by that, but they, they may say, oh, so the apostles come first and then the prophets, uh, the president of the church or the first presidency comes second. Remember, that the definition of an apostle is a prophet, seer, and a revelator. It's, it's all three of those. And then prophets, this gift of prophesying and to be able to testify of Christ is not, or it is a part of the calling of an apostle, but the, the apostles are set first. And the president of our church, even though we use the, the title the prophet, that's our title for it, but he's really the presiding apostle. The chief apostle is the president of the church, or the what we call the prophet. And then you'll notice the third thing that is given, teachers. And then after that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps governments, diversities of tongues. And we go down. Did you, did you catch that? That, and we're going to talk more about this in the epistle to the Ephesians. We'll go into much greater depth. But you see the first three, apostles, then he gave prophets. And then he gave teachers. There are many of you watching who have callings to teach in the church or our parents or grandparents and you do a lot of teaching. This is a, this is a divine calling. It's, it's something given to us by God, this role to be teachers in all of these different settings that you find yourself. And it would be really sad if we look at our role as a teacher, say we're the hand, and then we look at the role of prophets and apostles or other more important, maybe the heart or the mind of the body and say, well, I'm not as good as that. The reality is, is prophets and apostles can't do all the teaching 
in your ward, in your stake, in your branch, in all parts of the world. What an amazing thing when everybody in their individual roles and capacities turn heavenward to the, to the Lord, tune their ears to the seers, revelators, these apostles, and do the very best they can to lift where they stand in the body of Christ, in the church, we are all benefited. Even if we live thousands of miles away from you, we are all benefited by those consecrated efforts that you each individually make as teachers or in these other capacities as doing miracles, gifts of healing, helping people, governments, diversities of tongues. All of these benefit all of us. And then he goes on and he asks these rhetorical questions where the answer should be obvious. He says, are all apostles? The answer should be obviously no. Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet shew I unto you a more excellent way, which is a perfect setup for the next chapter where he lays out one of the most powerful gifts that all of us have access to, and it's the gift of love. And we'll talk more about what kind of love we're talking about and how it comes from God, and we're invited to share it with others. So this unity, fundamentally, the glue of that unity is bound up in this covenantal love that first is created and shared by God himself with all of us. Such a beautiful concept. So as we, as we conclude this chapter, before we turn into this uh, chapter 13 on charity and, and the love of Christ, just ponder for a moment using Elder Worthland's analogy of the orchestra of the Lord. Instead of getting frustrated if you're an oboe but you would rather be a cello, or if you're a piccolo and would rather be a timpani player, instead of looking at what other people can do and listening at the music they're producing, what if we spent more of our energy and effort turning heavenward to say, thanks, I thank thee for giving me this capacity with this particular instrument in this particular part of the orchestra help me to make my music the very best it can possibly be in the orchestra to add to the harmony and to those beautiful melodies that come together from the different uh, parts and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the conductor of that orchestra to know exactly how to respond when he asks for more or less or variations of what we're, we're providing into that overall sound so that we can can help him in that work of building the very finest uh, product in the end, the building the kingdom of God in the way that he wants it built. Now this shifts us into chapter 13 where we talk about the, the lead-in was, I will show unto you a more excellent way did you catch that? Well, the more excellent way is chapter 13. And if you go back to John 14, 6, in the upper room, Jesus tells his apostles, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I am the way. So Paul's going to show you a more excellent way. Everything in chapter 13, if you just put on lenses of symbolic lenses looking for Jesus Christ, this whole chapter 
is just a manifestation. Every word in here points you to the Savior, every single word. In fact, let me just ask it this way. If a member of your bishopric came up and asked you to speak in, in sacrament meeting next week, and they said, we want you to take 10 minutes and talk about charity. The topic is charity. Many people would get that assignment and say, hmm, okay, I'm going to start thinking of all of the ways that we can demonstrate charity. And that would be a fine perspective. I'm, we're, not, we're not knocking this down. I'm just saying there's a problem with this perspective because the invitation was to talk about charity. And what I've diagrammed on the board here is kind and charitable acts, but this isn't charity. Because if you really want to be technical, charity is something much, much bigger than this. Now, it, it would encompass this. That's part this, of it. This is only one part. Back to that large body we saw, this would be something like this is the foot. And if all you focus is on the foot, you miss the larger body of what charity is. So again, this idea of letting the scriptures be one whole orchestra and letting them all contribute uh, beautiful melodies that create then incredible harmonies working together. The Book of Mormon has, in my opinion, one of its finest moments is that talk given by Mormon in the synagogue that Moroni chose to include in his own book right towards the end in Moroni chapter 7. And his father, Mormon, gives this discourse about charity that is just phenomenal. And if you go down to verse uh, 47 in Moroni 7, it says, but charity is, so this is kind of a definitional statement, charity is the pure love of Christ and it endureth forever. And we know that charity faileth not. It, that's the, the theme of the Relief Society, right? So in my mind, the best diagram you could possibly make for what is charity is that. Charity is the pure love of Christ. Now, this is my attempt to reflect the pure love of Christ that has come to my life, but the reality is, is I don't generate that all by myself, independent, cut off from God's grace and God's power flowing through me. I receive from him, I process, and I strive to become like him, which causes me to turn outward. His whole life from the very beginning before the creation of the world is turned outward, and so I'm trying to reflect his goodness. Brothers and sisters, that is charity. So if we can keep that in mind, now we jump into 1 Corinthians 13. Yeah, these, this is a really powerful chapter. I'm really grateful you've talked about what the uh, Book of Mormon says, says about this. So in the Old Testament, we used a word regularly to talk about the love of God, the covenantal mutual obligation. In fact, we might call it this, where God gives us love and he expects us to show it back to him in covenantal relationship and to our neighbor. He says, love God 
and love your neighbor as yourself. And so chesed is this everlasting love that God shares and expects us also to demonstrate. In, that's the Hebrew word. In Greek, you have a word called agape. So when you see the word charity here in this text, the underlying Greek word is agape, which also evokes a sense of deep abiding covenantal love. So it's not just the love of like Valentine's Day or I love my pet. It is mutual, interrelated, relational, covenantal unity of enduring, everlasting, never failing love. That's very powerful. So chesed and agape. Now let's tie this back into Mormon. We've mentioned this before, and I think it's so important because we have this book called the Book of Mormon. We've talked about how the name is the lesson. And Paul's expressing all of this. Mormon does too. Mormon's name probably comes from the Egyptian word for love and everlasting. So if we translated Mormon's name from Egyptian, it would be love endures forever. And whose love? We're talking about God's love. So think about the title of the Book of Mormon. The book of God's chesed or agape or love endures forever. And that's what brings this unity that we've been talking about. So we hope as you are engaging in these chapters, you remember first and foremost, God's love is always there for you. It's like the sun is always shining. It might be nighttime, but the sun is actually still shining. You might be indoors and the sun is shining, but you have the curtains closed. Just know the sun is always there for you, never going away. And of all the things we talk about, there's so many interesting cultural contexts and, and words. More than anything, we believe that God wants you to feel his deep, abiding, everlasting love for you. And as you feel that, you feel this need to want to share it back to him and outward to others. That's what Paul is trying to get at. And frankly, do we have time to be disunified in any way if we are fixated on this covenantal love and this relationship of sharing God's love with those around us? I think it'd be really hard to be disunified. It's powerful. So let's pick up verse 1 of chapter 13 in this context. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Notice it doesn't matter what I do here if I have not charity. If I don't receive the agape, the, the chesed, the pure love of Christ, I'm, I'm sounding brass. I'm a tinkling cymbal. Which, by the way, becomes annoying. Like when you have a bell just kind of constantly ringing, it just becomes annoying. And the point here is that Real love, real covenantal love is nourishing and nurturing. It's not grading. It's not like, oh, what is that? It's welcoming and embracing. And we have all felt that from God. And again, the invitation is, if we have felt to sing the song of redeeming love, this is Alma, this is the song of redeeming love, can we feel it again? And will we encourage others to join in also experiencing that song of redeeming love? And he goes on to say, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith 
Remember these spiritual gifts that he's mentioned in chapter 12? He's kind of going back through the list here. So that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. I could have all of those gifts of the Spirit from that previous chapter, but without the pure love of Christ in my life that I can then reflect heavenward and outward, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth profiteth me nothing. He keeps coming back to this pure love of of Christ. Now look at verse 4. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Oh, that's interesting because he put two things together here. Charity suffereth long and is kind. It's easy to suffer long and be rude. It's hard to suffer long and be kind. And it's a fascinating couplet put together that this suffering and kindness go together. And I've actually learned from personal experience with myself and others that I've actually been unkind to people when I'm hurting and suffering. I've had other people be unkind to me or to others. And if you ever see somebody acting negatively, you can set it down as an eternal law that there's something hurting or broken in their lives that is influencing them to act less than they probably would in other in other circumstances. So when people are suffering, maybe it's hard for them to be kind, although we're commanded to be kind because true charity allows it. But if other people are suffering, maybe it's an invitation for us to exercise charity and to be kind to them in their suffering and uplift them. So this next uh, part of the, the description says, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up does not behave itself unseemly. And I'm going to stop right here. Have you noticed how easy it is to shift into a mode of talking about something like charity as if it were some essence, some nebula, some blob out there somewhere in the universe. Charity does all of these things. It suffereth long and is kind. It envieth not. It's not puffed up. It's not easily provoked. Brothers and sisters, charity is not an independent thing. Charity is a perfected attribute of God, a perfected characteristic and attribute of Christ. It's part of who they are. So watch what happens when you shift from away from just talking about charity as if it were a thing to it being an attribute of Christ. And the simple way to do that is simply replace the word charity with the name Christ and see what happens. Christ suffereth long and is kind. Now, many of you can start thinking of example after example of the Savior's life where he was in the midst of a difficult situation and he was kind. In Matthew 14, he found about the be- found out that John had been beheaded, went in a ship to a desert place apart, comes to land, and 5,000 men gather around, and he was kind to them. He healed them, and then he fed them in the midst of his own suffering. In Gethsemane, 
Malchus was part of the group that came to arrest him. Peter cut off Malchus's ear, and in Luke's gospel we find out that Jesus healed Malchus, when most of us would have been prone to rebuke Malchus or rail on him. But the Savior suffered infinitely long in, in the Gethsemane context and was still able to be kind. On the cross, one of the first things he says, Father, forgive them, speaking of these Roman soldiers, for they know not what they do. Suffereth long and is kind. You get the idea over and over again. Now, if you go through this whole list here of attributes of charity or attributes of Christ by replacing his name for the word charity, it gives us something better to strive for. I think if our focus is fixed on Jesus Christ rather than on some random attribute of the gospel, A, it's a little easier to focus my mind and stay focused in my scripture study when, I, when I'm looking for the Savior, and B, it's a lot more motivating for me to try to become more like him than to try to approximate some nebulous concept or principle. I'm trying to be like Jesus is the principle here, and I just got on a silver platter attributes of Christ that I can now actually start working towards with his help to become more like him, because he is charitable, and he will help me with my desire to become like him if we become more proactive, seeking for his help to, to embody these attributes that are listed here. So, if you, if you finish off this list, you could go through verse 4, 5, 6, 7, and consider how the Savior at different points in his life, both mortal and pre-mortal and post-mortal, for that fact, embodies all of these beautiful perfected attributes of pure love. He is, God is love. He is agape. He is the embodiment of chesed. And here you go, verse 8, charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. But charity doesn't vanish away. The God's pure love doesn't decrease or diminish over time. It will just grow in us and through us as we strive to reflect it outward. So perhaps, back to our analogy, if a, if a counselor in your bishopric asks you to speak in, in sacrament meeting next week on charity, perhaps that talk, rather than focusing on me and what I can do to be nice, perhaps that talk could begin with focusing on Christ and how perfectly he loves us, all of us, and how he invites us to take on his attributes, and then we're not, no longer just talking about nice things that we're doing, we're actually talking about the covenant path, companionship with Christ, helping us to not just feel more of his love, but to embody more of his love, so that people can feel more of his perfected, perfected love through our words and deeds and desires and prayers and whole approach to, to life and to those relationships. We could summarize again just the purpose of God's work in all the scriptures we have. It's to express and invite us to participate and share 
in that God's love endures forever. That is the message of the Book of Mormon, the Bible, all the New Testament, Doctrine and Covenants, Prorogate Price, Modern Day Prophets, and the Holy Spirit working in your life today. So we hope that you can feel God's love, that sure, there is context that's interesting to learn about, but let's focus first and foremost on what matters most. Paul's context, interesting. Let that not cover up that God is trying to just show us again and again, his love will endure forever. Charity never faileth. That is so empowering, Taylor. It's that idea of people coming to church when they hear certain ideals taught or certain principles or commandments of the gospel and they know what they've struggled with and they start to feel guilty and discouraged and demotivated. What an amazing thing when we cannot put the focus on caustic perfectionism of you're not good enough, you've got to try hard, you've got to be better. Instead of that, to put our focus completely rooted in and fixed on Christ and his goodness and then trust him to work with us and all members of the body of Christ in the congregation or in the family with us and be patient with the process. It takes time. Healing, growth, development, it takes time. Yesterday, my, my little seven-year-old, Merritt, they were playing and uh, one of his siblings had reached out to grab him by the shirt and had missed the shirt and had scratched his neck and he, he had a pretty big cut and he was bleeding and he was pretty discouraged by that. And it turned into a beautiful teaching moment to say, Merritt, uh, what would you look like if all of those cuts that you had ever received in seven years of life, every bruise, scrape, every injury, what if they didn't heal? What would you look like? And he got it. His eyes got really big and he said, ooh, I, I would look like a monster, basically. And I said, isn't that beautiful that God provides a means whereby the physical body can, can heal and regenerate itself? That a month from now, you're not going to remember that cut that's bleeding right now and it hurts really bad. Same principle applies even more so to the spirit. So instead of having the focus be on what we're not doing, I love this, this discourse on charity here and in the Book of Mormon to put the focus on God's goodness and on Christ's perfected love to say, it's okay. My struggles, my wounds, my hurts, he can heal them. Just like he does with my body, he can do that with my spirit. And I can learn from those things and move forward, which brings us to the very last part of chapter 13, which says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. So instead of going to church and pointing out all of the scar or all of the wounds and the cuts and the flaws and the brokenness, we go to the hospital for sinners called church and we help bind up those wounds, trusting that they'll heal because the master physician is very good at healing them. It's part of the attribute of his perfect love and his charity for us. 
that, that we can grow and develop over time. It has really been a joy to feel of God's love in these chapters. Now, there was a few chapters that we didn't cover, so we're going to do something a little bit different. We'll do our normal closing, and then if you would like to stick around, we're going to provide just a few minutes of some cultural context of what was going on in Paul's day and in the Greco-Roman culture uh, that would have evoked his response to some of the disunity. So we hope that you have felt God's love as you've immersed in Paul's writings about God's love. So as we close the main part of, of this lesson today with these two chapters that we've covered, just know that regardless of what part of the orchestra you're in or what part of the body of Christ you fulfill in your family, in your relationships at work, in your ward or your stake, and notice that in different areas of your life, you might fill different roles different parts of the body or different parts of the orchestra. And that's amazing. It's wonderful. But whatever those are, if we turn heavenward, keep our focus fixed on the Savior, realize that He is the conductor. He, it is the body of Christ that we're a part of. And then if we lift where we stand and do the very best we can to magnify those principles of the gospel and those gifts of the Spirit that He has given to us, then everybody's going to be benefited by it. And that's where we find true Zion, true unity, true oneness is not in comparison, but in consecration, giving to God and to each other all that we have, all that we are, and all that we hope to be. That's our prayer for all of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness. Now, for those of you who want to stick around for a little bit longer and get some more context on those first chapters, chapter 8 through 11, that we didn't cover yet, we kind of touched on them, let's, let's jump in very quickly and give an overview here of, of what's going on. Keep in mind, Paul writing this letter to the Corinthian saints they're living in this environment in Corinth with Acro-Corinth up on the hill. And Acro-Corinth has this huge complex of temples. And they're not Latter-day temples. These are pagan temples rooted in idolatry and adultery. It's rampant in that culture. And so massive amounts of energy and effort in that society are being spent to sacrifice animals to these idols at these temples and in these pagan worship rites. And the reality is, is once you've sacrificed an animal to that uh, god or goddess in the pantheon of, of idols, that meat to many of the Jews is considered completely unclean and impure and defiling. You might think in your own life, are there things that if somebody engaged in some activity and then wanted you to participate in that activity or some outcome of that activity they wanted you to have, you might say, nope, that crosses boundaries for me. And Paul is dealing with this. There were some saints in the ward who were consuming meat that had been given in sacrifice at the temple. Typically, meat was only available, as Tyler was talking about, through sacrifice. So some of the wealthy saints were bringing meat to a supper that would happen after the church meeting. So if you've ever had a potluck meal after church, it's apparently the Corinthians were doing this and some of them were bringing meat that had been sacrificed 
to idols. And some of the other saints in the world were like, this is actually defiling our community, our body that we've talked about. And so there was a debate. And Paul, Paul was pretty pragmatic. He realized that, well, first of all, these gods don't even exist. So really, is it a big deal that meat has been sacrificed to fake gods? The answer is no. But because some of my other saints, my friends, don't see that, they really think that these gods might have some kind of power, I will choose not to eat that meat or not eat it in front of them because I don't want to offend them. And so in any kind of community, he talks about this, this concept of freedom. In any community, if you're going to be in any kind of relationship, you always have to sacrifice some of your freedoms in order to gain others. And that is just what it means to be in a society, and Paul also deals with that. Yeah, so just a couple of verses. We'll, we'll skip rocks across the surface of, of these chapters here. Just touch on some of them very briefly. Verse 8, But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. He's saying, look, <laughs> the meat itself, just because it was sacrificed to that dumb idol, it didn't somehow change the composition and make it sacramental or make it evil. It's just meat. It's not going to hurt you and it's not going to help you. It won't exalt you and it won't condemn you. However, take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours, this, this knowledge and this freedom of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Don't do anything in that relationship that Taylor's talking about that would cause somebody else in that body to now become weaker because of something you're doing because you say, look, it's not hurting anybody else. Well, in this case, it might be, and this is tricky. So then in contrast to that, you'll notice in chapter 9, he talks about how as an apostle, they're free. To, to do all kinds of things, and he gives some examples here. Verse 4, have we not power to eat and to drink? Verse 5, have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? So, he's Christ's actually, brothers, as well as Peter, has a wife. Right, because he's actually talking about, yes, is it okay to be married and to go out and be a missionary and have a spouse? and actually to have the spouse join you in the missionary efforts. Because you got to remember, as Tyler was talking about, Corinth had a pretty kind of promiscuous society where some people were preaching celibacy. Nobody should ever engage in, in sexual relations. Others were up there being very promiscuous at, the, at these ancient temples. And they were like, well, I'm going to hang out with harlots all I want. And there was confusion for among some of the ward members. Is it, first of all, okay to get married? And if I am married, is it okay to have that spouse with me in a religious context? Because in the ancient world, there were different religious groups saying yes and no, and the Corinthian saints were asking Paul in a prior letter that he's responding to, what do we do about marriage? He's trying to say, yes, marriage is ordained of God, and yes, spouses can be together in religious context. Now, again, this is a very fast verse that we read. There's a whole bunch of complex cultural context going on that has been massively changed uh, up to the, to, that now is no longer like that. And we often miss this context. We read this, well, have we not power to be with a spouse as well as other apostles? And it's like, well, what does that verse even mean? That's kind of what's going on in the background is this question about marriage and what spouses can uh, engage in in terms of religious experiences together. 
then after discussing all of this freedom that comes from, from fulfilling these callings and being on the covenant path with the Lord, look at verse 19. For though I be free from all, the men there is italicized, it's an addition by the King James translators, for though I be free from everyone, basically, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. That verse is a powerful reflection of the mission, the life, the ministry, and the infinite atonement of Jesus Christ. He was free from all. He was free from all sin, from all people, from all government power. He, had, he was independently powerful and knowledgeable. And yet, he who was the most free became the most servant. Or, or the lowliest servant of all, condescended below everyone, became the servant of all of us. Why? That I might gain the more. What did he gain? It's not the notoriety. It's not the, the acclaim. It's the souls of the children of God, that he's able to gain them and bring them and present them spotless to God one day. What a powerful analogy for us to strive to become more like the Savior, using that verse as an example here. Though you're free from all, yet we make ourselves servant unto all. That is the essence of parenthood. That is the essence of service in the church and kingdom of God on the earth, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. No paid ministry as far as calling a bishop and offering a wage, no Relief Society ministering sister who gets paid a stipend to go and do her ministering visits. It's this, I'm free. I don't have to do that, but I'm going to make myself a servant and go and relieve suffering and teach and exhort and bind up wounds and strengthen and comfort and mourn with those that are mourning and stand as a witness of God. We make ourselves servants. And for those of you who are raising children with special needs, or those of you who have taken on uh, callings that are very difficult, and it's stretching you, and it's painful, and it's not fun. Being a servant isn't always just fun work. What an amazing principle to consider this Christ-like attribute that you're reflecting day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out, where you make yourself, you take other people's burdens upon your shoulders and you move forward. 10,000 years from now, I don't think any of you are going to look back and say, man, I wish my life would have been a lot easier. I wish it would have been filled with nothing but success, money, vacations, and perfect love everywhere I, I looked open doors everywhere I turned. I think we'll look back and be grateful for these opportunities that heaven gave us to serve, to sacrifice, to, to give up some of our own time, talent, money, energy, effort, desires for the benefit of these other people who couldn't always be of benefit in return to us because that's not why you become a servant to get something from people. You become a servant to serve them, to give things to them. That's the Christ-like element that is growing within us.
And in Paul's day, this is very startling doctrine. The ancient Greco-Roman world, Greek culture, Roman administration, is very stratified and hierarchical. It already is driven to create division. And so you have these different people who've decided to come into the body of Christ and they still bring their cultural baggage and they're asking Paul, what, what do we do about this? And they have these other issues. We, we talked about how they would often, uh, these early Christian saints would often meet in a home and they would have the Lord's Supper sacrament. And then after they would engage in that ritual, which is a memory of what Jesus has done to save all of us, just like Jehovah saved the Israelites from bondage, they would then engage in, um, say, a potluck meal. And sometimes what happened is, sometimes the potluck meal was before the sacrament meeting, and some people would show up early, and they would have an abundance of food, and they start eating, and other members of the Corinthian ward would show up without, perhaps they were poor members, and they didn't have food, and they're watching the rich members, or those with, eating all this food, and the poorer ones are like, well, I don't have anything, anything to eat. Oh, and now we're all supposed to be unified while we have sacrament meeting. It caused quite a bit of an issue, and there was this problem of, well, some of them are eating meat that was sacrificed at a temple. So you can imagine in this ward, it was quite a complex problem. Also, the issue they were dealing with is in ancient society, if you went to somebody's house to uh, banquet or eat with them, if the person who invited you over was serving food that you thought you shouldn't be eating, it created issues. Again, like how do you engage in a society if they don't always share your values? Let's make it even just a bit more challenging, in the ancient banqueting society that they were in, where people sat around the table indicated their status. Remember at the Last Supper, the disciples of Jesus were kind of uh, debating who got to sit closest to Jesus, like who had high status, who was low status? This is going on with the Corinthians. They come to this house church, they're having a meal in advance of the Last Supper reenactment of the sacrament, and some of them are put in low status positions at the table, others are taking high status position, and then there's this disunity that leads into sacrament meeting. Can you imagine the problem? How do you get unified around the body of Christ, which a sacrament is all about, when you have started with kind of a pagan-infused meal full of disunity that shows how people are in different levels of hierarchy? Just a real issue. Now, we don't necessarily do all the same things today, but that's part of the culture that's going on in Paul's time. So he, he gives some of the, the steps that we could take in how to create more unity following uh, verse 19. So if you look in verse 20, 21, 22, he gives us how he has, has tried his hardest to build some unity, and he says, Unto the Jews, I became as a Jew. Those who are without the law, I lived as without the law. Those under the law, I lived as under the law to gain them. It's this idea of compassion, looking, perceiving, what are they going through, and working with them to speak their language, to not create these layers of, of hierarchy that exists so prevalently in their society, quite frankly, as well as our own today, but to try to get down on people's level, to breathe their air, to walk their soil. That's the essence of ministering, isn't it? Well, Jesus did the same thing. Think about when he goes into the publican's house in Jericho. 
many Jews felt like it was culturally wrong or even morally wrong to eat with a tax collector. Jesus, who stood for all sorts of moral truth, also recognized that simply because somebody's a tax collector doesn't make them necessarily immoral and it doesn't make me immoral to join with them in a meal. Paul seems to be exemplifying the same attitude that Christ showed, that we have to be clear about what really matters and not create artificial boundaries of separation with people. So, you'll notice as he finishes off chapter 9, this concept of whenever you get into a comparison situation, it usually leads to pride that is competitive in nature. And competitive creates that layering or hierarchy of best down to worst. Well, in their culture, their, their uh, athletic games always resulted in one victor. They didn't do gold, silver, and bronze back in that day like we do in our Olympics today, or you don't have first, second, and third. For them, you're, you're, one person is going to prevail in that athletic competition, whatever it may be. And he talks to them about this, verse 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. The idea being the world's way of doing things is you're right. Everybody's going to put forth their very best effort, and in the end, only one is going to get the prize. But in the kingdom of God, with Christ at its head, we all come together and we all run together so that we all may obtain in Christ. There's no more competition. It's all cooperation and consecration. What a beautiful shift from the world's way, the, which, by the way, is the devil's way um, in, its, in its root, in its core, shifting it to the Lord's way of unity and true Zion-like oneness. You've heard of the Olympic Games. The, the Olympics were invented in Greece. Well, it turns out the Olympics was just one of various con uh, sports contests that would occur on a regular basis. And it turns out the city of Corinth was a place where Olympic-type games would happen every two years. So everybody in the city knows that we're, it was called the Corinthian Games or the Isthmian Games. But they all knew we're, we're an Olympic city, essentially, every two years. So Paul probably actually had seen these essentially Olympic activities. Now, technically, the Olympics were held in a different city. I'm just using the word because it makes sense. So again, Paul is using cultural cues that would make sense to his people. They all likely would have seen the enormous effort that these contestants would have put in for months to prepare and to realize well, lots of people prepared, only one winner. And Paul's saying, you guys are coming into this church house, and we're all running the race of getting back into God's presence. God does not only have space for one, and you shouldn't separate yourselves by hierarchy and by who's eating what, and you definitely should not create disunity before the sacrament begins. It makes it really hard to fill the Spirit if there's disunity and discord before the sacrament service. So this, this object lesson of these athletes in Corinth, what a beautiful uh, principle tied up in that object lesson as he finishes verse 25. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, this, this leaf crown that would corrupt, it would decay. It's like you went to all that effort to get 
this is the best the world could offer you as your prize. Yeah, some of them were olive leaf crowns. Some of them were, were celery leaf crowns. Have you ever wanted to spend nine months of your life just so you could win some celery? But that, but it meant a lot to people anciently. So it's just funny how things, just how we get driven for the wrong things at times. But what a beautiful object lesson. We, we can make fun of them and their celery leaves and their olive leaves, uh, but they could probably make fun of us for a variety of things that we spend untold amounts of energy and effort and time and money on pursuing and gain to what end? It's all incorruptible. Anything the world can give you is, incor or, or is corruptible. But notice the crown that we receive from God is incorruptible, eternal life. It's not a competition. Nothing is taken away from you by helping another receive more glory and more blessings from heaven. In fact, in the kingdom of God, in the church of Jesus Christ, it's not about dividing out limited resources. It's all about multiplying the harvest. It's about adding to our resources because the Savior has infinite capacity. We're not going to diminish what we or anybody else is going to get by increasing the fold and the body or the orchestra of the Lord. It's just going to get better and better and better. So just touching very lightly on a couple of principles in, in chapter 10, you'll, you'll notice this beautiful analogy that he gives to the children of Israel out in the wilderness. He says, verse 2, all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. This idea that Moses taking the children of Israel out of 400 years of Egyptian apostasy, took them out to the sea, and Paul's saying it's this analogy of we need to get them on the covenant path. What is step one? They have faith in Christ, let's repent of our sins, and let's begin with that first ordinance, baptism in the sea. Um, and then they go out into the wilderness and they drink from the rock, which is Christ, another symbol to represent who Jesus Christ is, the rock, and Book of Mormon teaching us to build upon the rock of our Redeemer. And you'll notice also the difference between the Greek word here being Petra, rock. A Petra is this big foundation stone or a big cliff. It's a, it's a giant rock versus Petros that Jesus named Peter. Peter Petros is a small rock, a little rock. Um, beautiful comparisons between who Christ is as the chief cornerstone of the church and his chief apostle being a little rock who's striving to become more like the, the, the Lord in, in the process of his growth and development. If we look now at verse 13, this is an incredible principle for the people living in Corinth 2,000 years ago but it's equally as powerful for us today. Look at this. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Instead of thinking, wow, I'm tempted with this really unique combination of struggles, both physical, moral, uh, financial, spiritual, whatever combination they may be, instead of saying, wow, I'm being picked on, he's saying, nope, Every temptation that's taken you is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, 
that ye may be able to bear it. In this analogy that Paul's using in these chapters about the body, some would wonder, why does he allow Satan to tempt us in the first place? Why not just seal up the gates of hell and not allow the devils to come and have any kind of influence on us? Can you imagine what your physical body life would be like without any kind of storms or gravity or friction or pain or sickness or infirmity? Can you imagine what life would turn into for us? Without opposition. Without opposition. In all things. So, yes, the Lord allows the devil to tempt you, but if you'll connect with the Lord, those temptations can actually lead to your growth and your strengthening of your spiritual muscles and increased balance and increased capacities that you wouldn't find if there were no opposition. And then let's pick up a couple of more verses here that tie in directly with what Taylor was talking about earlier, this table fellowship and all of the, the blessings and struggles that came with that in Corinth 2,000 years ago. He says, verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. And we've talked about it before, but the the great seal of the United States of America, if you look on the back of, a, of an American $1 bill, you see that seal, and in the one side it shows the eagle, E Pluribus Unum. You have 13 stripes on the shield, you have 13 arrows in the one talon, 13 olives and 13 leaves in the other talon, you have 13 stars above its head, you have 13 letters on the banner that says E Pluribus Unum, what a beautiful concept here for verse 17. We being many, you had 13 colonies, 13 states, and they're unique. South Carolina was very different than New York. They're unique, they're distinct, but the idea was let's come together and become one. E pluribus unum, from many, one. That's exactly what's happening here in verse 17 and he's inviting the Corinthian saints to basically experience e pluribus unum, become unified in your conflicts, unified in your peace, unified in your defense, unified in your wisdom and knowledge and looking to the heavens for light and direction, become one body in Christ. That's the essence of this whole uh, set of chapters today. So, Paul is amazing, and he's dealing with very specific issues. Now, remember I told the story about my parents trying to deal with very specific problems of disunity in among their kids, and they kind of passed the law. Just leave the blue cup alone. Again, I hope I don't get cut out of the will, mom and dad, because you see me holding a blue cup. It's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it from him after this episode, so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll realign that law. So we see in chapter 11 yet another case where Paul's trying to create unity, and I confess, this has been a chapter that has been confusing to people and has caused a lot of consternation. And Bible scholars have scratched their head about this for a long time. And still, nobody has 100% certainty of exactly what everything Paul meant. That being the case, we want to be careful that we don't impose practices that made sense in his time to our day. For example, let's look at verse uh, 14 of chapter 11. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, 
it is a shame unto him. Now, in Paul's day, in the Roman culture, short hair was the norm. And so he's sharing the common culture. And if Paul, and I'm just being silly here, if for Paul this was an eternal principle that long hair was a problem, would Paul be scandalized to see pictures of Jesus? The point is, Paul is not scandalized by Jesus or by Jesus's hair. Paul was simply trying to help create unity in the ward at Corinth. He also addressed some issues about people speaking out of turn at church, and he uses some uh, he uses some language that makes women feel that they are not allowed to participate. And we have to be careful here because Paul was not trying to say, we actually don't want women's voices. How often does Paul call out the women who have supported him? Like Phoebe. He even calls out a, a woman, uh, Junia, who actually, he says, uses the word, he's, she's like an apostle in how she has been a, being a missionary. So Paul is actually very uh, high-minded about women. But in the ancient Greco-Roman culture, men were seen to be head of the household and how people within that household acted either brought glory to the home and the house and the family and the family name or shame. And there were expectations about in a public setting how and when people talked. And so in that culture, if a woman spoke out of turn, it would bring shame to the family. We don't live in that kind of culture anymore. So women absolutely should be talking in church all of us should, when it's appropriate. I shouldn't be talking in the middle of sacrament when people are trying to partake of the bread and water. And again, unity is about understanding cultural expectations and what brings peace and harmony and alignment with God and one another. And Paul was addressing very specific ways of doing it for his people. We should look at the principle, where in our communities can we be unified so we've had a lot to talk about here today, but more than anything, as we, we conclude here, is we want you to know, again, how much God loves you, that these words have been preserved to guide us and encourage us to feel his love and to know that God is totally aware of who you are, where you're at in, in your life, and that his covenantal chesed and agape is always available for you. Thank you for all that you do to add to this collective body of, of saints and of children of God across the world. We're all benefited by that. May the Lord bless each of us to move forward trusting more than ever before in God, putting our focus on the Savior, Jesus Christ, and trying to reflect more and more of his love and his goodness and his gifts to all of those around us. And we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.